you have anything you'd like to discuss? Seems so. I mean, practically speaking, when we look at our experience, it feels like we're making choices. Those choices themselves are conditioned. And I think there's, without getting into kind of the endless philosophical debate, which has been going on for a long time, And maybe it has to do with the, the way the discussion is framed, free will versus determinism. Maybe that's the problem in those concepts. Experientially, it seems that we do make choices, that the choices are conditioned by a variety of factors. How about that? So when I was talking, I think it was Steve Rostrom was saying from the absolute point of view, the other choices, it's not like you make the choice, it's kind of like, you don't like a choice, but it seems like that's part of the optical illusion. And basically, it feels like when I take a course of action, it's just all the factors of my life push me in that. Direction. I'm not really making the choice. It's just I'm under the illusion I accept that I feel like I'm making the choice. But actually, I can just uh, sit back and watch it happen. Depending on how you resolved this question for you, for yourself, would it alter how you live? Yeah, definitely. In what way? Well, why don't you try it? (laughs) I mean, the, the danger in that is that, and I think I expressed it earlier on in the retreat, it was expressed by Ajahn Sumedho when he said that really what we need to do is train the heart, not follow the heart. Because a lot of what we do without making conscious choices is really the acting out of some unwholesome mind states. So it may be that in those situations, we actually do have to, for whatever reason, and in whatever way we can, bring some energy to the flow to divert it in a more wholesome way. I wouldn't assume that everything that arises, and I 
hope after three months you don't assume it either, <laughs> that everything that arises is necessarily a wholesome state of mind. <laughs> you know, because we have been conditioned by so many different forces, and there are so many different kinds of habits. And this, I see, is where, just in a very pragmatic way, and not, not so much kind of from the philosophical standpoint, but pragmatically, the essential role of awareness. It's only if we are paying attention, it's only if we're aware in the moment that we can bring some discriminating wisdom to see for ourselves. You know, is this course of action, is this choice, is this decision onward leading towards happiness, towards freedom? Is it onward leading towards suffering? So again, for me, the practice really comes down to the possibility of freedom which awareness offers us. And without it, we're just, we're just living out conditioned habit patterns. You can't really look ahead at that point. You have to look at the motivation. Mm-hmm. Right? And then that would, that's the whole mindset. Well, it's... You can't predict all around, but, you know, we talked earlier about the balance of wisdom and compassion. So, in other words, our motivation might be pure. Our motivation might be compassionate. But really, that's not enough, because we might be motivated to do the right thing, but not have enough understanding in whatever size context. Whether it's the understanding of ourselves, the understanding of the other person, the understanding of the situation in the world, you know, in whatever arena we're working in, we need the wisdom to inform the compassion. What is the action that will really be effective in alleviating suffering? That's why it's such an interesting balance, this balance of wisdom and compassion. And, and if we're very, if we have a lot of wisdom about what will alleviate suffering, but we haven't cultivated the heart of compassion, so we just sit with our wisdom. And it's not very effective in the world. So it's really both. Could I talk about it? Yes. I mean, I see mm-hmm. that as a goal. Mm-hmm. The question was talking about abiding in mindfulness in our daily life. It's definitely a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> There's an interesting... Different traditions sort of talk about it in different ways. And I think it could be helpful to be aware of the spectrum of ways of talking about it. One way of thinking of mindfulness and abiding in mindfulness is being something that we develop. You know, and we notice all the times we're not, and then we cultivate the development of it. The other way of talking about it is that mindfulness or awareness is the natural state, and when we forget, we come back to it. I would find whichever one of those connects with you. 
I mean, rather than rather than create a right or wrong, because I don't think it's like that. Increasingly, over all these years of practice, myself and being with different teachers and teachers in different traditions, I'm appreciating more and more all of the teachings as being skillful means. You know, and so rather than getting attached to the finger which is pointing at the moon, it doesn't matter. The idea is to look at the moon. The idea is to see what works for us, what actually works to free our minds. The measure of it all is whether the forces of greed and hatred and delusion are diminishing in our lives. And whether the forces of generosity, of love, of understanding are increasing. And that's really the measure of what we're doing. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. It, it is. It is striking in a way that there's uh, not a vipassana center in New York. It may be that it's because you know this place and other vipassana centers in Massachusetts uh, are reasonably accessible, and so there hasn't been kind of the the push to create one there. Um, so feel free. <laughs> I think it actually is. I think it may be that your impression is uh, not correct. I mean, in my, I have a lot of contact, you know, with Dharma circles around the country and really around the world. Um, and it seems to me over the last 20 years, is it? Uh, is it me or you? <laughs> that the teachings are are becoming very accessible, you know, in a in a very wide ranging way. 
One of the things, when I first went to India and met Munindraji, my first teacher, one of the things that so um, inspired me, really, in the practice was its great simplicity. Basically, I went there just having come uh, from... (laughs) I'll maybe take it off. Basically, in this context, insight into the three characteristics. Right? Insight into impermanence, into dukkha, into selflessness. Um, when the mind is fixed in a jhanic state, it's not primarily seeing those three characteristics. Um, although the power of the samadhi can then be turned to Vipassana, and then our insight becomes very powerful because of the strength of the samadhi. Um, I was sitting in the uh, hallway last night, and just for four seconds, the walls started going like that. I mean, there are so many, um, so many kinds of altered perceptions that happen. Strange things are happening. (laughs) If you feel them tumbling on top of you, (laughs) let me know. But I mean, lots of, uh, they're just, as the samadhi gets stronger and as the mindfulness gets stronger, just our usual way of perception really, really can change a lot. And at first, people are a little either upset or fearful or wondering. But as you go through that more and more, you see that it's just more phenomena, more empty phenomena. And you don't want to, you don't want to get attached to that either. I've uh, become uh, increasingly concerned. Maybe I guess it comes from my own fear states uh, as I've progressed in the practice, particularly during this three months. That um, after you get to a certain stage, it seems like uh, Steve, Stephen Smith talked about this a little bit. That the uh, the instrument is playing itself. It's, it's like, you know, you let go so much that it's it's just all happening. And I don't know, I'm kind of struck by, I mean, how free, how, how free are you at that point? Because it doesn't seem like you can step away from it. 
them, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's just all happening, and, and that's it. Caught in the jaws of the Dharma. <laughs> well, it's true. But, I mean, what's the alternative? I think I'll be more greedy. I think I'll cultivate anger. You know, at a certain point of understanding, the path becomes so clear and so obvious and we're so just becomes so clear that this is the way to actually lead a life of benefit and welfare for ourselves and others and it really does cease to be a choice in a certain way not that we never fall off of the path. We fall off many times, but there's such a strong momentum of understanding, you know, that the path really becomes our home. It's a nice place to be. Are you concerned about it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not all the time, but at times. Again, keep in mind that what it comes down to is not a system, and it's not a philosophy, and it's not a set of beliefs. It's really about suffering and the end of suffering. It's about living in awareness or living in ignorance. It's about being caught, being imprisoned, or being free in any moment. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, there are so many pieces to it and so many sides. One important understanding is that essentially there is no difference between being on retreat and being off. It's the same mind-body process working. It's not that you leave retreat and somehow the mind-body, Nama Rupa, is different. It's the same thing going on with the same kinds of causes of suffering and the same possibilities for being free. It is true that the retreat is a powerful time for honing the, the power of awareness. 
or developing and cultivating and strengthening that ability. And hopefully, as that quality is being strengthened, and the awareness more than the samadhi, I think you'll find that often people you may not be able to sustain the same level of concentration. But you can really be as mindful. And it takes the same effort. This, this, is, this is a little parting wisdom. Okay. <laughs> Get set. The same effort that's required on retreat is required off of retreat. It's, but so often we have the idea, okay, we come here, we put in all of this effort you know, and really develop and strengthen our practice, and then there's this hope in our minds, <laughs> okay, we've done this, and then we expect that we should just be able to coast on the fruit of our efforts. You can coast for a while, but it will quickly wind down. Sometimes I think that some of the most important thing that's learned on retreat is how to make right effort. Of what that means, actually. So that we can then practice that, we can make that effort in our life in the world. The practice can definitely deepen in our daily life. There is, there is no doubt about it. Because sometimes it's the situations of the most uh, difficulty, the most suffering, the most getting the most embroiled. It's exactly in those situations if we know how to look, if we know how to be mindful, if we know how to investigate, that can actually reveal so much about the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. Don't overlook the value of times of difficulty in your life. Because they can be so revealing, so illuminating. In those situations that are the most difficult, whether it's interpersonally or health-wise, whatever, whatever the particular dukkha may be, right in that situation you can discover intimately and very profoundly the Four Noble Truths. It's right there. The suffering is immediate. It's not abstract. It's not some, you know, the Buddha taught that so many centuries ago, there's this noble truth and that noble truth. There you are, you're suffering. You're in the middle of it. Can you open? Can you see? Can you feel that suffering with awareness? Can you investigate the cause of it? How is my mind relating to this situation that is causing the suffering? Can I let go of it? Can I free the mind in that moment? How to do it? So it's all, it's all there, it's all contained. Don't wait to come back you know, for retreat. And just in ordinary moments, even in, in those moments when we're not in particular suffering, when things are going well, 
I mean, all of this is just a sort of a summary of what's been said over the last three months. Notice how the mind creates the world. You know, when you leave here and you're driving back home, notice what the mind is doing. Is it simply present? Is it just at ease in the present moment, feeling the body, touching the steering wheel? Just there. Or is the mind lost in a mind-created world of planning, imagining, anticipation, worry, fear, whatever? So it's all there. This, the very same thing that you've been doing here and practicing will follow you. And hopefully the practice will follow you. You know, I, the Dharma is our life. It's not a retreat. The, the retreats are fantastic. Um, but it's about our life. It's not about some special event, some special time out that we take. It's really about understanding what it is that's going on. I didn't quite get the... I think um, when I find it difficult, I can find myself in a situation that I would like to act in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But I feel I can't because I'm... What actually is present is different than I would like to have at the moment. <laughs> right, you, you're in a situation you would like to act in a certain way but you feel that you can't. I might feel uh, totally miserable because of my thing. Mm -hmm. And like like the other the other uh, evening I was I was sitting and having tea. <laughs> I felt just completely miserable just on and on and on just the and suddenly it occurred, and I was judging myself for not feeling gratitude for having a very and all stuff. And suddenly it occurred to me that I just couldn't feel gratitude in all this kind of mess of negative feelings, wasn't it? 
possible. But then it was like, um, so it was like the express gratitude to, to managers or to all the beings who created her. Mm -hmm. I felt I couldn't mm -hmm. from my heart. Mm -hmm. And it felt very painful not to be able to do that. <laughs> no, I understand now. Yeah. I think in a situation like that, and perhaps in similar ones, sort of being truthful is really quite an expression of gratitude. And so in that moment I could imagine if there was a situation of the managers are there, you wanted to express gratitude, you weren't feeling it, you're feeling aversion. You know, managers, I'd really like to be able to express my gratitude now, but I can't because I'm feeling a lot of aversion. There's a connection there, there's an honesty. You know, and then at a certain point down the road, when the aversion cloud has lifted, you could go back and express it. And there's something I think to be said for clarity. In that situation, you're not venting your aversion. You're just you're reporting. This is what's happening. I'd like to be able to do this, but I can't now. And right in that, there's, there's a connection of honesty. Which I think is often lacking in our communications and is greatly appreciated. I'd like to express my gratitude for all your practice, and I am really feeling it. <laughs> See if I can get. One of the areas of difficulty for me is um, how easily I could feel my space being violated and the uh, protections that we've had here have made that difficulty all the more salient. Um, Earlier today, you said you don't know how vulnerable you are. And um, in my life, I noticed that if I could spend as much time at home practicing and then go out in the world and have a nice interaction with, with people and then go back home, you know, that would be great, you know, <laughs> and that um, 
I'm noticing that slowly my life is turning that way. <laughs> but it doesn't make any difference. I'll go out in the world and I may not have a nice interaction. And there may be, no matter what I do, I have no control over blame, disrepute, the lokadamas. I think the question or questions in that are there are several like bringing that mindfulness to the steering wheel like you talked about it's very different than bringing mindfulness to the interpersonal process and that people project things um, they interpret a glance, a gesture in ways that they spin off into their own mind worlds with. And as much as I practice equanimity, I can't do anything uh, about that. Um, and that's the stuff of my life. I mean, that's those interpersonal things, what people think about me. And, um, you know, I don't want to make it more complicated. It's actually more than the stuff of your life. It's the gift of your life. Because, and the Dalai Lama expresses this frequently, and it's such a wonderful teaching. I mean, he, he uses a certain language for it, but we can sort of translate it into our own. Your enemy teaches you patience. Honoring the person who is showing ones, showing us our faults. Being grateful for our buttons getting pressed so that we can see our buttons. You know, it's all in the context of how we hold our own responses in difficult interpersonal situations. If we think that's a problem and it's their fault because they're projecting and they're doing all this and they're not really seeing me clearly, so then we create, we create a very difficult contracted situation. One of my experiences with Upandita, I mean he has such a strong personality, you know, and he would just continually be doing things to push my buttons. And I, at one, I, I, I can't remember whether I told this story, but you know, one time he, he was having me sit with this enormous amount of pain I, I should, that I should sit through. I should sit until it comes, however long it takes, and then sit through it. <laughs> it was intense. I mean, it was really intense. And I would go in and after, you know, I'd say, well, I sat three hours and then I had him off. <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. And whatever, I, I go on my reports. And one time, he just said, don't you have any pride in being a man? <laughs> 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 and actually, that, that actually was not such a barb, because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And I so, so I, I took it in a humorous way. But one of the things in working with him, I and mean, he just kept, 
he kept pushing the buttons until I stopped reacting. And as soon as he would say whatever he said, you know, and my mind was just really open with it, a whole relationship changed. Now, I don't know whether he was doing that consciously or intuitively or whatever, but from my side, looking back, I really appreciated the process. Of all the times he would do things that would cause a reaction in me, because it was a chance to see, okay, how am I getting caught? What am I attached to? Where is whatever it was getting stuck in me? And doing that over and over again until I could see and just see it all as empty phenomena, let everything wash through. What changed in your relationship? It became much a lighter. I mean, uh, yeah, much lighter, uh, more humorous. Because I wasn't taking myself so seriously. You know, and, and this can be with very, very painful things. I had a personal, an interpersonal situation of a, just a friend doing something that felt like a really, a betrayal. And it was very painful. It felt like, just like a knife in my heart. I, and it was so hard to conceive of this person doing that. And I was working with it in so many ways. And that person occupied the enemy category for a while <laughs> in my metta. But what was interesting was that just from being with that and really feeling the, the emotional pain of it, I realized that for the knife to hurt, it has to stick someplace. So, in some way, I was giving it a place to stick. And so a lot of the work I did was unhooking from that. You know, if there's a knife and it goes through air, if it goes through space, if it goes through emptiness, there's no problem. But this is the work we do. This is the work in which we can appreciate the difficulties in interpersonal relationships. And this is not to say that we condone people's actions when they're unwholesome. I'm not suggesting that at all, and sometimes a very direct communication you know that certain actions are unwholesome, and that should be communicated. But whether we suffer or not is up to us. It's not up to the other person. And that is the great liberating insight. Because as long as we think that our freedom depends on certain circumstances, that's a very conditioned freedom. Because we're not in control of the world and of circumstances. But we can come through understanding our own mind. We can come to that place of freedom within ourselves. And each of the things that presses our buttons or causes difficulty, or that's a gift. But it's quite a challenge to see it that way.
Sister Joseph, you've given us some wonderful hints. When panic, let's say, stress, oh, I've got to do this, and now I have to do supper, all of that begins to come in for you, if it still does. What, <laughs> do you have some of your formula things that you say? You do, I mean, do you say, huh, here's a gift, stress. And <laughs> you, you know, do you have something that catches that beginning when it's really just as it's coming, so you don't get too caught? The thing that I use a lot, and I've tried to really convey and share with you over these months, the piece that has served me so well in all of this is the quality of interest. You know, when I feel my mind beginning to contract around something, when I feel some suffering, and suffering is very different than pain, right? I mean, and I, I think you've probably seen that now, but it's quite possible to be with painful things, and it's fine. Suffering is when the heart is really contracted, when that begins to happen, it triggers this place of interest. I want to understand what is going on that is causing this. How am I holding this situation? How am I seeing it? What am I doing? Just all those questions come up. And it's the interest which provides the energy for understanding. And it is interesting. I mean, that's because it's about our life. Otherwise, without that quality of, attenti of attentiveness and interest and investigation, we're just swimming in the stream of conditioning, that's all. You know, and, and, do you remember from a talk way back, the image of samsara was that of a, of a bee caught in a bottle. You know, that has a lid on it. And it can buzz up to the top of the bottle, it can buzz down to the bottom, but there's no way for it to escape. Our samsaric life is when we're just lost or identified in the stream of happiness and sadness and this and that, and we're just going along, sometimes in the higher realms of happiness, sometimes in the lower realms of suffering, but without that awareness, that investigation, that real wisdom of understanding, we're just going around and around. These are the rounds of rebirths within one life, within one day. The whole practice is about developing the mind which can free itself from the identification with all this. And we can do it in a moment, even if it is only for a moment. Right? But don't undervalue that because it really gives us the taste of freedom. Um, I've been practicing for quite a few years, and it's my time of my life. Um, to 
probably had a very significant conversation with somebody. But because I've been meditating or because I felt that it was the way to be, I would be very quiet in my presentation, when maybe I should be more aggressive or assertive. And sometimes I'm concerned when I hear teachers talk because um, being equanimous all the time does not lead to integrity of advent. In, in certain situations. Yeah, I, I think that that's a very good point. The, the idea of the practice is not to become flat. But that's not the idea, and it's not what happens. And if someone is intruding, um, doing harm... Right, you take your umbrella, and with all the love and kindness in your heart, you hit them over the head. Yes, but it really depends. Is that a response with whatever the affect may be? Is it a response that's coming from a reactive state of mind, a caught state of mind, or is it coming from a place of a free state of mind? Yeah, I'm not suggest I'm not suggesting that that response means you know, settling back and letting whatever danger is there invade. That's not what I mean by response. I think the response can be very immediate, very forceful. And it really is simply reflective of our own particular level of development at that time. What so, Basically, what I would do is pay attention in, in taking the appropriate action, in the action that seems appropriate at that time. I would just pay attention to the quality of mind out of which that's coming. And I think I have seen that over the years of practice, the quality of mind out of which appropriate action happens, changes. At any particular time, we are where we are. We can't pretend. You know, if, if something's happening, we're, we're very angry. I think you're quite right to say, or to have this ideal, well, I shouldn't be angry now, and I better not act because 
anger is here. That's just a pretense. But through paying attention to the mind states that are actually motivating action, the mind states themselves change over time. And that's the purifying power of awareness. The other side of this is um, the idea of loving peace and kindness. Um, may no harm come to so and so, and may they be happy and all, and so on. But sometimes when um, I'm in these situations and I'm attacked, it seems to me that the thing that would bring this attacker or this condition to less harm for itself and all others would be for it to be contained in some way, removed in some way, um, brought to a different reality other than one of impunity, where I'm just sending it love and it's doing harm to me. Mm -hmm. That this thing needs to be I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, there's a, there's a phrase which is used in some of the traditions. It's called wrathful compassion. Well, it's really what you've been talking about, I hope. You know, where you see the need for forceful action and even for the affect of wrath right, in terms of containing some energy, some person, whatever. But it's really seeing, and this is, this is the point I was trying to make earlier, seeing and training the motivation behind that. It's recognizing the need for it, but is the motivation one of hatred or is it one of compassion? And that's what can be transformed. You know, and to begin to see that out of compassion, both for our own suffering and the unskillful actions of another person, we can be very forceful, we can be very direct, even wrathful. But the place we want to examine is that basic motivation in ourselves. Now, it was interesting, when I was doing the, the metaphor my enemy of, the, <laughs> of those moments. It was really quite interesting, because I was, I was very upset with this person. Really quite upset. But as I was doing the metta, I saw my mind, uh, one part of my mind was kind of uh, making little revenge lists. <laughs> <laughs> But as I was doing it, and as I saw, you know, I realized that I really didn't wish him harm. Now, as I thought all the things that I could do, or all the things I would wish for him, you know, I thought, I really didn't want that. That there really was a sense of compassion for myself, for this person, just to come out of all this suffering. So motivation is really very key. You know, a few years ago, when all the hostages were in Lebanon and released, there was one, it was uh, a British 
His name was Brian Keenan. Irish. Australian. Australian. <laughs> <laughs> he was the universal man. <laughs> and he said something very beautiful and very striking. He was being interviewed. And he said, after, after these years of being held captive and tortured and all of that, he said, I have no desire for vengeance because vengeance is self-maiming and I have no desire to maim myself. And, I mean, there's an incredible wisdom of understanding, okay, what's happening to us in whatever responses we feel are appropriate. And to learn that we, that there's a wide range of appropriate response in different situations that can come from a motivation of understanding, a motivation of compassion. And that this is a practice. It's not that we're always there. We're not. Often we are reactive. But it's to see another possibility and to see that we actually can train ourselves. We can train our hearts. Um, I really appreciated this past conversation. What what, um, the question brings up for me is in the context of um, wrathful compassion and non-harming is uh, in situations of um, uh, potential military action where there is a great danger or very harmful military or political action and um, it's very confusing to have non-harming as being uh, an ideal and to you know to respond I can see it individually much more easily than um, in national or larger scales where it's much more complicated and the motivation isn't always compassion it's economic or political or whatever um, could you say something to that <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, it, it is very complex. I'm, as you were talking, I was thinking, and I, I don't know enough of his response to this, but it would be interesting to, to investigate a little bit the Dalai Lama's attitude towards the Tibetans who either in the past or currently are fighting guerrilla warfare you know, and just how he sees that in the light of nonviolence. Uh, I mean, I, my experience in that arena is very limited. I guess it sounds like the action of what seems like very harmful violence it's too simplistic to just say that, that there might be situations where it's um, necessary or appropriate. You know what, one of the, I mean, you did put it in a, in a, in the context of a bigger geopolitical context, but again, one of the images that came to mind 
just of Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. No, in the South, in the face of direct physical violence, it was amazing. And it was really amazing to be in that situation in the midst of it. You know, it was surrounded by hatred with direct manifestation of the hatred. And to be coming from and counseling a response of love. I mean, sometimes I just to have people like that to model a possibility for us and, and the incredible power of it, for me, is, is tremendously inspiring. I guess it just seems, you know, what that brings up for me is that there's a, there's a difference between a strong action that stops harm and another one that transforms the situation so that the harm doesn't, that the person who has been doing the harm actually sees that that is not, um, that it can actually open to what mm -hmm. that's causing and then not continue as opposed to just being mm -hmm. uh, censored or... Mm -hmm. I mean that of course is the ideal outcome. Now it's tremendously, as you leave here now, after three months, the world is a vast practice ground for the Dharma. You know, in, I mean, in, in countless arenas. You know, and hopefully each one of us kind of then brings to our life both a deepening understanding and also just a willingness to see, okay, well, how can the Dharma be applied in this situation? How can it be applied in this? And this is our challenge. You know, so that it doesn't stay something that just happens in the seclusion of a retreat, but that really does, through each one of us, begin to permeate the society we live in. And that's quite inspiring. You know, it's like we're the first generation, really, in a large scale of Dharma practitioners in this culture. And as the Dharma went to other cultures, it transformed them over centuries. It's like we're right at the beginning of this. It will be wonderful to see how it flowers, you know, in so many different ways through each of our own particular interests. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.